Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, it can be found on page 774 if you've got your house Bibles. And as we've been saying through this whole series, if you brought your Bible from home, it's probably in the crispy white pages that don't get opened all that much. Right towards the end of the Old Testament is where you can find it, the book of Jonah. In 1857, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear prayed a very specific prayer. And his prayer sounded like this, Lord, what would you have me do? Pretty simple, but honest. Lord, what would you have me do? And the reality is about that prayer is that's a very dangerous prayer to pray. You know, I think there's a lot of prayers that we say oftentimes that I'm not sure if we really mean when we say it. For example, I've heard people pray, search me and know me, God. Reveal iniquity and unrighteousness within me. You know, when David prayed that prayer in Scripture, it got really bad for him as God started to show him all the brokenness inside of him. Sometimes the prayers we pray to God, I'm not sure we totally mean. We give them lip service, but don't actually feel them in our heart. But here was a man who actually felt the prayer in his heart. God, what would you have me do? He was a businessman in New York City. And he heard from the Lord, uh, start praying. That's a good place to start. Start praying. And he was concerned because he was looking out over New York City and seeing a bunch of really aggravated people who seemed like they weren't experiencing the fullness of the gospel. And he, as a Christian, had a care and a concern for these men and women. So he started a prayer meeting in his office. Six people came that first day. The next week, 20 people came. The week after that, it was 40. And soon they began to run out of space to pray. And so they moved to daily meetings. And soon those daily meetings began to run out of space. And this thing called revival started to happen. This thing called revival. Here's what revival is. Where God, because he is sovereign and has total control, and on his time, on his watch, when he decides to do this, sometimes the Spirit of God moves in such a way that mass numbers of people are stirred up in their hearts and come to faith in Jesus at the exact same time. It's called revival, and it's happened all throughout church history. And in 1857, it spread through New York City like wildfire. It's estimated that in that year, over one million people placed their faith in Jesus Christ and began attending churches around the nation. His prayer revival extended far beyond New York City. Today, it's called the Businessman's Revival of 1857. In that same year, it's estimated there were four to five million followers of Christ who participated in this and had new convictions around their faith and began to do something new with their life. Lord what would you have me do? <laughs> you know, it only takes one man or one woman to pray an honest prayer like that to set off something that we call a revival. If, if you look at history, if you were to read a book on Christian history, what you would see is that at various times, it seemed like the church was about to fade off. It seemed like enough persecution, enough pressure was being put on the church across the globe, and everyone, with their eyes of what they could see, would have said, the church is just about on its last legs. But time and time again, every time it gets to that point, something miraculous happens. Revival breaks out. 
Revival breaks out and stirs the church up again, and we can't quite explain it. You can't pin it down. But this is the story of history. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of common, low, uh, common denominators between a lot of these revivals. There's not an equation. There's not some perfect system you can put in place. And if you do X, Y, Z, revival's certain to break out. No, God's far more complex than that. God does this stuff on his time. But if you look at the history of revivals, there are some things that were true with each of them. Jonah, in the book that we are studying in chapter 3, in my opinion, in my limited scope of knowledge of history, I believe this is the greatest revival ever recorded in human history, what we are about to read today. Jonah chapter 3. And the thing about this revival is it comes through the most unlikely guy. If you've been with us for the last three weeks, what you've learned about Jonah so far is that this guy has screwed up at just about every chance he had to do the right thing. He's messed up. God said, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them about the gospel. And where'd Jonah go? He went the exact opposite direction. And we didn't, remember we wrestled with, what was his reason for that? Was, was he afraid of the Ninevites? Certainly, Nineveh was a scary place. It's right outside of modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It was a dangerous territory. It was filled with some of the most wicked people ever recorded in history. And we read from their own historians how wicked of a city it was. We don't know if Jonah was afraid. We don't know if Jonah was wrestling with ethnocentrism, with racism. He looked over at a people over there. He lived here. He looked over people over there with a different culture, a different way about them. And he said, I don't want to go to those people. We don't know exactly what was in Jonah's heart, but we know this. He was disobedient to God's word. He was as disobedient as you could get. He ran in the opposite direction. And yet here, God picks Jonah up in chapter 3 and says, you know who my guy is? You know who's my guy that I'm going to go reach the Ninevites with? That guy, Jonah. That guy who screwed up every leg of the way. That's my guy. That's the one I'm going to use right there. One man, one broken man, who decides to follow God. And miraculous revival happens. I think from today we're going to pull out, and I'm going to try to pull out from this text of Jonah chapter 3, three key principles behind the revival that we see take place in Nineveh. Again, these are not an equation or a system that we can try to replicate and manufacture revival. Revival happens when revival happens because the Spirit of God is powerful and He does it when He does it. But these are things as faithful followers of Christ we ought to be living out and putting in place if we are going to live expectantly waiting for revival to happen. Let me read to us all of chapter 3. If you remember, the end of chapter 2 ended this way. Jonah, in his disobedience, had been running from God. God, in his mercy, sent a fish to swallow Jonah, get him back on track the way he was supposed to go. Jonah 2 ends this way. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. A.K.A. Jonah had a bad day. He's covered in vomit at this moment. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Now here's the sermon he gave. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, now it gets into the details of the revival. Watch what starts happening in the city. The word of all this stirring up in the city reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose, the king of Nineveh arose from his throne. He removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, he sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout all of Nineveh. The proclamation said this, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, what do you guys think God did? God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Element number one that we see in this. What are the requirements? What are the things we see take place in this revival that tend to be true in all revivals throughout history? Number one, revivals require the preaching of God's word. Revivals require the preaching of God's word. Now, let me be very clear what I mean by that. The word preach very simply means to proclaim. It means to proclaim a message. So when I say preach, I'm not necessarily speaking about what I'm doing right now in this pulpit. This is a form of preaching. But preaching is very simply one person telling another person about the love of Jesus. That's what preaching is. It's proclaiming a message. It's saying, this is what God has done. This is the information you need to know. Revivals require the preaching of God's word. Right out in Jonah chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1, it reads this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and here's the word, call out. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, there's a couple key distinction markers about this message that we pull out from this text. What kind of proclamation, what kind of preaching ought we be participants in? Well, first and foremost, it's the message that God tells him to give. You notice that detail. Go, Jonah, tell the message I tell you to give. As followers of Christ, we have very specific details to the message that we've been told by God to give. The, 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 the challenge that Jonah was given is literally the exact same mandate that Jesus gave us. If you recall, I say these words at the end of every single service on a Sunday. The last words of Jesus Christ when he left, when he ascended, was go into all the nations, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. Jesus said, go proclaim the good news of what I've told you. Go proclaim the message that I tell you to say. I think in our day, one of the challenges we have is that it's very easy to water down the message that Jesus told us to say. There, there's an old quote by a, a man named Francis of Assisi. We don't know if it was him that said it, but history says it was him that says it. And, and this quote goes something like this. Always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, maybe you've seen a bumper sticker or two that has that quote on it. Always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And the idea there is actually quite beautiful. It's this idea that, you know what, you don't have to use your words to tell people about Jesus. Just live a compelling life. Just, 
just live in such a way that the gospel is so saturated in your body and in the way you love your family and in the way you serve that people will just naturally see God in you. And what I want to say is there is truth behind that in a sense. Yes, followers of Christ, we must live a life that says to the outside world, there's something peculiar about me. But we've also got to use our words. Revivals, revivals require the preaching of God's word. And, and, and what's amazing about this is that God gives us very clarity, a lot of clarity around the things we are supposed to say. In our day and age, there's no shortage of messages and of preachers trying to tell you what they think God has said. Some of the loudest voices in our modern culture are speaking on behalf of Jesus, words that Jesus never said. And it's a dangerous line when we start proclaiming a message that is not the message God directed us to. That's what Jonah was told by God. Tell them the message I tell you. Sometimes what we do in our walk with God is we begin to water the message down. And, and in a sense, what we're doing is we begin telling people a message that is not the message that God told us. All throughout our country, there is a, a wave of churches that today has the title Prosperity Church, Prosperity Gospel Churches. And what is being said is that God desires you to live a life of health and of wealth and of happiness. And if you were to go to Target today and look on the Christian shelves of what's being sold, the most popular books are preaching that message. But that's not the message the scripture said. It's such a, a message that resonates in the American heart and the American psyche because we kind of somewhere deep inside the American dream want to live a life of health, wealth, and happiness. It sounds kind of good, but it's actually not the words of Jesus. You see, if you recall, Jesus was a suffering servant. His disciples were suffering servants. His disciples picked up the call to carry their cross and follow Jesus wherever he led. To the ends of the earth, many of them stayed in the cities where they were called, but they lived compelling lives that oftentimes brought hardship, brought sacrifice into their lives. In fact, the call of Christ is to constantly be giving more and more away, not hoarding more and more for yourself. How easy it is not only to begin saying a message that is not the message that God told us to say, but to begin hearing other people saying a message that is not the gospel that God said. We've got to make sure what we're saying is what actually God really said. And here's what's amazing in this story. Jonah goes and proclaims this message. Very short sermon, not many words at all. And the people believed this is what's amazing to me. The people actually believed. Jonah goes into a city of 120,000 people, begins saying a message as one man, and all of a sudden people are actually stirred up to faith through the telling of the good news to them. Now, how did that happen? Now, I see this happen all the time. And, and I think many of you see it happen all the time as well. Oftentimes, the way God works is this. You don't know it. But the people that we're bumping into, the people that we're talking to, the people that our lives are intersecting with have any number of things going on in their life. And at the moment where you pluck up the courage to talk to them about your faith and open up in spiritual conversation, invite them to your home in order to let them know about the love God's poured into your life, you don't know it, but oftentimes their life has been broken and a mess and they are waiting for someone to tell them a glimmer of hope. 
They're just waiting for it. And God orchestrates this moment where he sends his preachers to tell a very specific message at a very specific time to cause revival in someone's heart. You see, here's what had happened in Nineveh. Jonah wasn't quite aware of all of this, but Nineveh was in a bit of disarray. We see this. The king actually gets up from his throne and says, you know what, guys? We've been pretty wicked. We've got to actually repent of the wickedness that we've been doing. He recognizes something's not been right about the city of Nineveh. In fact, if you look at history, it was right around that time Nineveh was shrinking. They weren't sure what their society was going to be like 20 years from then. Would, from then. Would they still be there? Would they still be existing? Hardship was breaking out in the city. There was famine that was happening in the city before Jonah showed up. Get this, right around that time, a few years before Jonah shows up on the scene, there was a full eclipse of the sun that took place from Nineveh. Oh. Talk about God getting people's lives. In that day and age, in our day and age when there's a full eclipse, we order glasses. In that day and age, it sent people into a religious panic. Jonah didn't realize this. Jonah shows up on the scene. Everyone's in a panic. <laughs> and then one man says, hey, God, God loves you, and I want to tell you about it. And everyone believes If there's a message for us to pull out from Jonah at this particular point, it's this. Oftentimes, the people in our life that we are doing life with, the people that in 1857, during that businessman's revival, that were around that businessman who said, you know what, I'm just going to pray in my office before the day begins, are waiting for someone to tell them the news that there is a God who loves them. God, what would you have me do? Can we say that prayer with honesty this morning? Number two. Number two is this. Revivals oftentimes require messengers that embody the exact message they are delivering. Now, it's one thing to go and tell a message of God. It's one thing to actually carry the truth of what's in here and to say those words. It's another thing for those messengers to actually embody, encapsulate, and display through their very life the very words that they're saying. Notice the the very specific words in in this passage, the way it kicks off. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. If you've got a pen and you don't mind writing in your Bible, I would circle a second time. Underline it, write an exclamation point in the corner. The word of God came to Jonah a second time. Let me put it another way. The word of God came to a rebellious, wicked, sinful man, callous in his heart. More than likely, dealing with all the same wicked sins and tendencies that we deal with in our modern days. A man who had ran away from God at every opportunity he had, continued to run away from God until God had to send a fish halfway across the ocean to swallow him up to get him back in the place he was supposed to be. And yet God gives him a second chance. He gives him a second chance. Did you know God gives second chances? God gives second chances. No matter how far you've run from God, God, the God of this Bible, the God that you've come in this room to learn more about today is a God that looks at your story and says, I can give you a second chance. And look at the depth of the second chance that he gives Jonah. Remember, Jonah had not just put his own life in jeopardy. He had put the lives of others in jeopardy because of his rebellion. You remember those those fishermen on the boat, the the mariners that Jonah got on the boat with? 
Jonah had fled from God. He'd gone in the opposite direction. God said, here's what I want you to do. Jonah runs over this way. He gets on a boat to the coast of Spain because he says, I think I'd like to spend a little time in luxury rather than going to Mosul, Iraq, God. So he goes the opposite direction, gets on a boat, going the wrong way. God sends a storm. And the mariners are in a panic. These are professional men who do this for a living every day thinking we are about to die. And the reason they're in that predicament is because Jonah put them there. Jonah's not just causing scars in his own life. He's causing scars in other people's lives. Jonah's messing everything up and everyone around him is caught in the wake of the disaster that is Jonah's life at this moment. And yet God says, even then, I'll give you a second chance. Even then, Jonah, I still love you, and I'm not done with you yet. Get on over here. I got work for you to do this morning. Let's go. I think sometimes we look at our life and we think, you know, I've got so much baggage. I, if people knew what I did back then, if people knew what, what I had participated in, if people knew what I did yesterday, I can't, I can't be part of something large. I, God can't use me to accomplish something beyond what I could ever imagine. God could never do that with me. I'm too messed up, too much brokenness in my life. But that's not the God of this Bible. It's certainly from Genesis through Revelation, what I see is a God who looks at people who are broken in every way and says, I will give you a second chance, and then I'll give you a third chance, then I'll give you a fourth chance. How many chances you want, I'll just keep giving it to you. Let's get going. You see, we are not the sum of the mistakes in our life. That's not our identity. Some of us carry our mistakes around like tattoos, and we think this is what defines us. You know what, I made those mistakes. In fact, sometimes it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where we begin to develop an identity around the mistakes we made and we kind of sit in this identity as if we can never be anything else because that's who we once were. God can't change that. The God of the Bible offers you a second chance. You're not defined by the mistakes you've made. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're defined by a God who loves you, adopts you into his family, and says, this is a special chosen son or daughter of mine. He redefines you. And you are not the sum total. You're not defined by the sum total of the abuses you've received. You know, some people, their story is that they're not necessarily the cause of all of this sin, but they've had tremendous sin done to them. They've got the scars to show it. They've been the victims of other people's abuse towards them. And, but what can happen is the exact same thing. We are all victims in some way. Some people have received incredible levels of victimhood. But there is a way to sit in victimhood where that becomes your identity. As if it's to say, God, God could never do more with me. God could never reach people with me. God could never have me do this. And we put God in a box, tell him what he can or can't do, and all of this is off limits for God, but God doesn't get in a box. He's bigger than that. And we are not, our identity is not the ways we have been victimized in our past. Jesus redefines that. He gives you a new identity. And we are not, for many of us, we've been followers of Christ, and we've taken on the identity as a sideline player. We're, we're part of God's family. We're part of God's team, and we've all received the mission, but, but we live our lives in such a way that our identity is a sideline player. We, we, got, we got no mission. 
We've got no boldness. We've got no courage. We've got no one to tell about Jesus. There's not much stretching of our faith involved in our faith. It's going through the motions. And really what we're doing is we've assumed the identity of a sideline player. I got good news for you. God gives second chances. Today and tomorrow... And if you're still a sideline player a month from now, guess what? God's going to give you a second chance then as well. But he invites you to step onto the field. God's got a mission for us to do. And wherever you've been identifying yourself with, Jesus is able to re-identify that in you. Our God is a God of second chances. But, but here's the thing with Jonah. It's not just that Jonah was a broken man back then. And then he steps onto the shore, and then all of a sudden, Jonah's life is perfect, and now he can step into this wonderful mission God's given him. Jonah's still a pretty messy, broken guy. All through the rest of the story, we're not going to get to Jonah chapter 4 today, that's for next week, but then it really gets in to just how crazy Jonah's heart is. It kind of looks a lot like my heart if you were to peel it open and see all the wickedness that's in there. Jonah's a pretty relatable guy. He's broken, and he didn't just suddenly get better and then start being used by God. While he was in his brokenness, God says, I'm going to use you. How often do we confuse this? While he was in his brokenness, as he was, incomplete as he was, God says, I'm going to use you. Now, how do I know Jonah was still a mess? Well, a few ways. One, look at this sermon Jonah gives with me. Verse 4. I'm sorry, no, chapter, chapter 3. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, verse 4, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I don't know if that's the exact word for word that God told Jonah to say. But reading that sermon, it kind of sounds like this is what Jonah was doing. Oh, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Yet 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. When I read that, I see a man who's putting very little heart into the text. And the way it's written, it's almost driven to communicate that. Here's a guy who's actually not yet even fully expecting God to bring revival. But he's being obedient in the little things he's been asked to do. Jonah's still a mess. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts this way. But it... When, after this whole revival happens, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. <laughs> 120,000 people put their faith in God, and Jonah's the only guy who's angry. <laughs> the prophet of God, the guy who's the hero back in Israel, is the only guy who's not experiencing the revival. This is a broken guy. This is a guy who's carrying around a lot of bitterness and a lot of brokenness. I think within the walls of a community like this, it's very easy to think, i got to get my act together before God can begin using me. It is true that God gives you second chances. He does. He begins to rewrite your story, and he offers you that second chance every single day. But it is also true that God uses broken people to accomplish extraordinary heavenly means. Ends. God is able to take your brokenness and produce beautiful things through it. In fact, that is literally the story of the Bible. God taking broken people with all their things that they would think, God, you couldn't use me. You could not use me. And then right through those very things that they think are barriers to God using them, actually extraordinary, miraculous things taking place. See, God is not limited by your poor past performances. Remember Peter, 
Jesus' best friend? How many times do we read in the story of Peter, Peter putting his foot in his mouth? You see, he was an extrovert, a lot like me, and the, the mistake I make is that I speak before I think half the time, right? I don't know how many times I say something, oh, I wish I could take that back. And that's Peter, the leader of the first century church, right? But God's not limited by the fact that Peter speaks before he thinks half the time. In fact, it's that exact thing that God used to shake up the early Christian church, Remember the day of Pentecost and in the beginning of Acts? 3,000 people trusted in Christ at the first sermon Peter ever gave. God's not limited by the level of education or the level of confidence you have. Let's talk about Moses for a second. God tells Moses, I want you to free the people of Israel. What does Moses say? God, I got a stutter and I'm a little embarrassed to go speak publicly. God, God says, you think your stutter is going to stop me? from accomplishing one of the greatest miracles the world's ever seen? Moses, right through the middle of that stutter and right through the middle of your inconfidence, that's right how I'm going to shake the world up. How about we talk about Rahab? See, God is not put off and he is not, uh, we are not putting hurdles before God by the level and the atrocity of the sins we've committed. Remember the story of Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. And yet God, through this woman who had experienced tremendous brokenness in her life, ends up saying, right where you are, I'm going to change the world. And God is not limited by who you know or how you got there. David, King David, was a shepherd in the outskirts of Israel. God said, I'm going to change history through you. See, this is the message of the gospel. God takes broken people, and actually it's in our brokenness, Paul says. It's in our brokenness that we glorify God the most. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might be made known. For Paul, it was the very things that he struggled with. It was the very things that he said, man, I'm a wreck in this area of my life, that he said, that points to Jesus, that area of brokenness, it points to Jesus. And so I invite you today, where are your weaknesses? Where are those areas in your mind that you just keep falling to the same sins? You just keep, you can't get over it, and you find yourself still in that same place, wishing you could be somewhere else. Here's what Paul says, that actually points to Jesus more than you know, and he invites you to be authentic about our brokenness. We don't have to pretend like we have life together. No one's got it together. We're all broken in need of the same Savior. But the good news is we actually have a Savior who sees our imperfections and deals with them fully on the cross. See, our Savior says your weakness, your brokenness, your corruption within your mind, all those things that actually are the cause of pain and scars in your life and other people's lives, you can't deal with them fully, but I have done with them fully. I've dealt with them fully on the cross. That's why I died. That's why I let my body be spread out on a cross. That's why I poured my blood out for you. is so that you would not have to sit and wallow in your own imperfections, but I would actually deal with all of it on the cross for you on your behalf. One man dying in our place as a result of our sin, as a result of our imperfections, as a result of our rebellion to God, one perfect man stepping in where we had failed. Jesus says, right in your brokenness, 
because of what I've done on the cross for you, come to me. Run to the cross. That's where you can nail up all your imperfections and see that I've dealt with them perfectly on your behalf. Church, you don't need to wait until you have life together. If you're in this room right now, and you've been coming around church for a while, and you're seeing and you're tasting, there's this Jesus that seems to be pretty amazing. He offers me a second chance, and you've been putting it off. But you keep coming around because it's interesting, and you keep coming around because you're tasting of the Spirit and the goodness, and the reason you're putting it off is because you're thinking, my life is too screwed up. I'm not like that yet. I like being here, but I'm not ready to commit yet because I got to get some things in my life together first. It's never going to happen. You're never going to get it together without Jesus. (laughs) Don't wait. You don't need to wait until you've got it all figured out. You don't need to wait until you have all the answers. You don't need to wait until you're over all your sins. You don't need to wait until your, your mind isn't thinking about things it shouldn't be thinking about. Come as you are. Nail all your brokenness to the cross with Jesus. Today, literally, all you have to do is believe on Jesus, and he says, now you're my child. Now I can start pouring my love into you and building and accomplishing through you things you never thought I could do. Don't wait to put your faith in Jesus. And what you find is that you then, in authenticity, begin embodying the very message of the gospel we proclaim. Number three, and I want to close on this. Revivals start with a single step of faithfulness. One single step of faithfulness. God tells Jonah in chapter 3, verse 3, go to Nineveh, and it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, to give us a little bit of context here, that's 900 miles. From the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel to Nineveh, 900 miles. That's the distance from here, a little more from here to New York City. And how did that journey start for Jonah? Still a broken guy, still messed up, still scarred. He spent three days in a fish's belly. It's been told from other people that have gone inside fish's bellies before that what happens is you're then stained white. The stomach acid bleaches your skin white. So literally, he's carrying the scars around with him of someone who's rebelled from God. But he turns, and he puts one foot in front of the other, and he starts following God. He's not to Nineveh yet. He's got a journey to get there. God will always call us to extraordinary things. That's the God we serve. He's not interested in you living a very safe, kosher life. That's not what God's going to do with you. God's plan for your life is to stretch you and send you. The biggest picture of the entire, the narrative of the entire Bible is God reaching the nations with the message that God loves them, and he will accomplish that through his people, and he doesn't want you to stay safe and tidy. He wants you to get gritty with your faith and to step out in courage and boldness, and he will always challenge you to things you're not yet ready to do. That's what God does. I don't think Jonah was ready to go to Nineveh yet. But he turned and he put one foot forward. And God took him on this 900-mile journey to begin getting him into a place where he would then be being used. Every one of us needs to be listening to the Spirit of God who's going to be stretching us far outside of our comfort zone. Remember, God doesn't fit in a box. Don't say, God can't tell me to do this. Don't say, God can't tell me to go there. And don't say, God can't tell me to forgive that person. God doesn't fit in a box. God will call you to do all the things that you're too afraid to do. 
So count the cost. I just invited you to accept Jesus. If you accepted him, let me make sure you're counting that cost. God's going to stretch you. But in that stretching, he invites you to take one step of faithfulness at a time. This week, my wife and I, we had what will forever be a memorable day for me. We got to finally adopt our two foster daughters. I can't even believe it. Two years ago, my wife and I started having a conversation. This is how this works. I'm not putting myself up as the example of this. I screwed this, I screwed this up more than anybody in this room. I promise you that. And those in this room who really know me well know that's true. But, but I want you to know this journey. God revealed to us in Scripture that it was God's desire for Christians to care for orphans. That, that's what he says to do. And all through history, Christians have been caring for orphans. It's what they've been known for. And my wife and I started praying. And I remember, my wife was always 10 steps ahead of me in this journey. I'm always the one I was like, uh, this is going to be hard. <laughs> right? Uh, I'm not sure. And my wife is so smart. She's like, you know what, Rafe? There's a class. There's a cl- Let's go to the class. Let's just go to the class. What's the harm in going to the class? Let's learn. So we went to an adoption class out at a church in the suburbs. Learned a little bit about adoption. We came home and then I was already one step in. I had already taken that first step. I had 900 miles still to go, but I was one step in, and the next step was to have a conversation with my wife about it. Say, hey, what's God doing in your heart? Start going down a journey, and and we realized it wasn't adoption that God wanted us to do, but it it was foster care, go the foster route. It's a slightly different way of going about this. And I was totally closed off to foster care at first. Remember that, Sarah? And, and, And I said, that sounds even messier than adoption. But my faithful wife, seeing the road a little clear, more clearly than I saw it, said, you know what, Let, let's, let's go to the class. <laughs> right? I married well. We started taking a step. Started taking a step. And then we got news that there were twins that were going to be available for needed foster care. And I didn't see that, but okay, let's pray over that. And okay, Wow. Right? And, and every day is just a step. And, and when we first brought the twins in, and it was a whole new world, and trying to navigate that whole new world. And, and then before you know it, what happens is you're halfway to Nineveh. And not only are you halfway to Nineveh, but you're loving every step of the way. God wants to do the tremendous through you. Revivals start by one person saying, I'll live radically for God. God, what would you have me do? Okay, that's not what I was expecting. That's way outside my comfort zone. But if you said it, it's got to be good. And I'm going to trust that. And I'm going to start taking one step of faithfulness today. My question for you is, what is your one step of faithfulness? You don't have to change the world today, but you got to take a step. you got to listen to the Word of God inviting you to participate in the story that he's unfolding around the nations, that he's winning a people to gather before his throne, to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross, and he's invited you to participate in it. What is your step God's asking you to take today? God, what would you have me do? Let me pray. Father, we praise you this morning. You are good. You are so good. And your plan for our life is so much bigger than our plan for our life. 
We have little plans for our life. We want safe little lives, but you call us to the extraordinary and the miraculous. You call us to participate in what you're doing and what you've got planned, not what we've got planned. And God, we want to be there. We want to see the Holy Spirit roll out like wildfire across the city of Chicago. And, and we'll never say it can't be done because it happened in Nineveh. And if it happened in Nineveh, it can happen here in Chicago. And so, God, we pray for your power. We pray for your spirit to lead. Lead us, and may you give us the courage to take our steps of faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.